Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 20 years ago, Odyssey changed the putting game when they introduced the white hot insert. Now the most iconic, most played, and most sought after putter insert of all time is back in the new white hot OG. White Hot OG has the same mythical combination of sound, feel, and performance as the original, but with modern upgrades that are available in classic head shapes like the two ball, the rosy, and the number seven. White Hot OG, legendary then, iconic now. See the new lineup at callawaygolf.ca. Unemployment is high, but the number of people quitting jobs is also rising. What's going on and where does it all lead? I'm Gabe Friedman, and my guest this week on Down to Business is Jennifer Robson, a professor of political management at Carleton University who studies household finances. Robson told me there just seems to be an incredible amount of churn in the marketplace these days, and people are weighing whether the jobs they held before the pandemic are jobs that are worth returning to when there's a deadly and contagious virus going around. We talked about whether employers may end up hiking wages to mitigate the labor shortage and the debate about the Canada Recovery Benefit, which gives people affected by COVID-19 about $2,000 per month pre-tax, depending on certain circumstances. It's set to expire in a few weeks, and there's a lot on the line for the economy and for a lot of people, more importantly. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business. Well, thanks for having me. We're in an odd spot because in some parts of Canada, especially places with lower vaccination rates, the pandemic is really getting out of control. And then in other places, things seem more calm and some workers are even getting called back to the office. But the CRB or the Canada Recovery Benefit, formerly known as CERB, CERB, is coming up for renewal soon, I think at the end of October. That's right. And so there are voices on both sides. There are some people who are saying... If you got rid of CRB, if you just dropped it, a lot of people would fall off a financial cliff. But I hear a lot of people talking about labor shortages, for instance, in the restaurants. You know, restaurants can't find servers. And that's prompted some people to blame CRB that it's doing harm now. What are people missing in that debate when they frame it in those sort of polarities? Yeah. So cutting, uh, giving people a sharp cliff to the end of benefits without ensuring that there is something else for them to transition to. And here I'm thinking in terms of labor market programs, retraining, skills enhancements, job matching kinds of programs. For some people, they're also really going to need some help with the financial coaching and counseling piece because taking benefits has saved them in some respects from immediate crisis. We did a good job of making sure that not a lot of people ended up like defaulting Uh, on their mortgage or falling behind on rent and being evicted. We did a good job of making sure that uh, food banks weren't overrun. We did a pretty good job by providing the income support and keeping things going. But there are an awful lot of folks who are now in a situation of trying to figure out like what tax do they owe on the benefits they took? What, if anything, are they going to have to pay back? In addition to that help, right, of figuring out what's next for them in terms of work, They need some help that is suited to their circumstances, that is within their ability to access, to be able to get that kind of financial information and and personalized coaching. 
And I imagine an awful lot of the folks who are listening to your podcast might work in the financial services sector, you know, or be financial planners and advisors. And I just want to point out the folks that we're talking about who tend to, to be lower wage workers who were most directly impacted are probably not really their target markets, right? So we need other service providers. And there's a whole network across Canada in the voluntary sector, but they just need to be properly resourced to do this work. So that's on the the protecting people's finances piece. But yeah, absolutely. This does weigh on me in terms of the broader macroeconomic thing. You know, household spending in Canada was two thirds of of the economy before COVID. And we have somehow managed in this time to actually keep consumer spending relatively stable. And it's sometimes even you know, above pre-COVID levels. And so, yeah, I get it. There are also macro considerations that what do we do when we turn off the taps and suddenly musical chairs happens and who's left without a seat and what does that do in terms of spillover effects? I also appreciate the perspective of employers who are saying, I can't find good staff, right? Or I can't find staff, period. And that the temporary income benefits might look like, they might look like a, a target that they could point to. I would say there are probably a lot of other factors going on here. Yes, unemployment is still up, but quits have also been rising, believe it or not. So there just seems to be a fair amount of churn in the labor market, right, where people are trying to figure out whatever job I was doing before, is that really what I want to go back to? And even if it's not CERB that's keeping them afloat, they're they're doing something, right, in this interim period. And we haven't yet really seen any upward pressure on wages. So to the extent that employers are feeling frustrated, it also looks like maybe employers haven't looked at, you know, ways to enhance job quality, to provide, you know, higher rates of of pay, to be more attractive for workers to come back to. You mentioned restaurant workers, you know, I imagine that an awful lot of those jobs are particularly demanding. It's frontline service. You're dealing with members of the public. You're working indoors and outdoors. And now there's also this extra task of doing some of the enforcement of local public health measures, right? Which maybe that the value of that work is not necessarily being fully compensated. So over time, one would think in a well-functioning labor market, you should start to see that rise in wages and that the people who are still thinking about what they want to do land in places where they feel that they are being fairly compensated for the full work that they do. Yeah. You always hear people saying like servers make most of their money off tips. And if you ha- you would think that people would start tipping more and maybe not. One of the things I that you've sort of implied in here that I think is a little more nuanced is the bureaucracy and the uncertainty of everything that's going on right now. In other words, you know, some people would ask why we couldn't just use EI, like why we had to create a whole new program. So why wouldn't we just use EI? Well, I mean, EI is back up and running, which I think folks tend to forget. It's been up and running for at least a year now with some temporary rules that are supposed to make it easier for folks to qualify, right? So the threshold of the number of hours of insured work that you need to be able to qualify for EI has been lowered. And and there's this sort of temporary situation around just making it more accessible. But the reason we ended up in the first place with CERB and now CRB is because uh, EI doesn't cover enough people. (laughs) Like to give you a baseline before COVID, and this is for years, this goes back, you know, years and years. If you've got 100 unemployed people, by the time you get through all of the eligibility criteria of did you pay any premiums? Did you have enough work? Did you have an eligible reason for separation from the job? By the time you get all through that, all those hoops, only 42 out of the 100 are going to qualify for employment insurance coverage in cases of unemployment. 
is that leaves a big chunk of the labor market that isn't going to be covered by that. The other thing that happened was that the system itself caved in. It was just completely overrun with applications that would have taken the estimates I was given somewhere in the neighborhood of like four to six months to sort through, which is just when you're counting on that big social insurance program to also be acting as an automatic stabilizer for the economy, four to six months is not automatic. (laughs) Way too long. Like you have done permanent damage if you are waiting that long. Meaning what? Like people will be homeless or indebted? A range of things. But then you have that contagion, right, that that catches on and creates, you know, huge amounts of difficulty within the broader economy, right? If people are not able to replace their income, they're not able to keep up consumption. And yeah, some of this leads to like material deprivation in the short term, which is awful, absolutely awful. But it also leads to like real and widespread economic scarring. Which is interesting, right? Because like, I feel like a lot of people have drawn this lesson from the pandemic that our economy is actually really stable. It's not as fragile as we think. But that almost sort of suggests the opposite, that it could have gone very differently. And we could have seen like more than we already saw a rip in the economy that we're still dealing with. We, we seem to have emerged less scathed than we could have, it sounds like. I think so. I think so. And I, I understand that there are a number of people who maybe are in positions where they have not really been directly impacted financially um, by this, who may feel it's time to get back to normal, right? Like quit it with all these temporary programs. And I understand the emotion behind that or the desire, right, to return to some sense of normalcy. But the fact is that there's still a lot of uncertainty. We really don't know what the course of the virus is going to be like in the coming months. And it is, I believe, I firmly believe this now, comparing, for example, Ontario versus Alberta, Saskatchewan. I think it is much more efficient and effective to keep some baseline measures in place than to drop them and discover later on you have to bring them back. Do you think that we will end up keeping some parts of this as a permanent sort of policy? That's a really great question. All of the parties had something on their platforms about employment insurance changes, because I think they all get it, that the system that we had pre-COVID is not up to par. And they all had some mention in their platforms of a recognition of needing to provide something, whether inside EI or beside EI, for EI and eligible workers. So I think we're going to have something. Does it look and sound a lot like what CRB is right now? I don't know. There are a lot of challenges with CRB, right? It's a flat benefit, so it's not terribly responsive to differences in terms of past earnings. It's a bit clunky in terms of the administrative stuff. It's not connected up to those active labor market programs that I mentioned, right? So it's sort of like, here's cash, but where are the services to complement that? So I hope that whatever happens in this next parliament, that the parties, you know, they seem to agree there is a problem, but I I hope that whatever happens, they invest, you know, some serious thinking around a a series of measures that will actually fix some of the challenges they've addressed, but do it in a sustainable and inclusive way. Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to pivot since we're talking about parliament to the recent federal election. A lot of people complained that it wasn't really about anything, but I did notice that one of the issues that came out of it was affordable daycare. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who studies household finances, how important do you think the affordable daycare policies will be to our future economic growth? 
Yeah, I think the literature on the return on investment of affordable childcare is pretty uncontrovertible, right? That yes, there's an upfront, particularly capital cost to governments to, you know, build a system, but once it is operating, you definitely see huge economic impacts in terms of maternal employment, well, parental employment period, but especially maternal employment. So stronger labor market participation, but also the ability for more parents to be working full-time instead of part-time, right? Which is huge. Massive productivity gains there, and you definitely see the returns to government in the form of higher tax revenues. But, you know, the other thing to bear in mind is that kids are also our future workers. So if you're thinking about this from an investment model, it's not necessarily just about like what's the price tag for the childcare space and how do parents weigh the relative costs and benefits of working a little more relative to the cost of paying more daycare. It's also about like how good is the quality of the education and care that the kids are receiving in those services because they're the evidence on the long-run impacts of childcare is a little more mixed, right? That where where kids go into programs that are high quality, you you see good outcomes for them in terms of educational outcomes, social development, and all of this we know has lifetime positive returns in terms of their participation in the labor market, contributions to society more generally, all that sort of stuff. But if kids don't get great care, then yeah, you do see some negative impacts. So we got to we got to balance these two things, right? How do we build a system that re- helps reduce the financial pressure on families today, but also how are we building a system that ensures that we're actually investing in kids because like we need them to be as a high-skilled, you know, high-functioning as possible for the longer-term health of our economy. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot at stake there. And I think it I'm sort of leading up to this one this broader question of whether you think the pandemic has significantly changed the conversation about social safety nets and the role of government, whether on tax policy or household savings or affordable daycare or anything else. That's a, oh man, I was talking about this with my students just the other day in class. I can't prove this, but my thesis is that on at least on affordable childcare that the conversation has changed because suddenly we have seen some unusual allies coming to the table, right? Major financial institutions, Business Council of Canada, who were not necessarily chomping at the bit for investments in early learning and care over the last many decades. I don't think they were necessarily opposed. It just wasn't necessarily a priority. And I think, and I'd you know, love to hear from your listeners if they think there's anything to this. I think that the shutdowns where those of us who had to continue working from home while parenting, <laughs> I think that perhaps that that brought home to private sector employers in a very real, immediate way how important this issue is to their workforce. That if you're on a call day after day with your employees and you hear the kid in the background or you see like the little sticky hand with the jam fingers coming up, you know, like maybe this actually created an awareness and understanding and empathy that wasn't there before on childcare. With regards to the role of government, a couple of public opinion research firms had been tracking trust in government over the pandemic. 
And it seemed like here in Canada that there was this improvement in the public's perception and trust of government. I don't mean of like a political party. I just mean, do you do you trust the government, right? Do you have confidence in, in their ability to, to do things? And it did seem to rise to levels that we haven't seen for a long time, which is really important for trust in institutions and stability and all that sort of stuff. It seems to have edged down a little bit, but I wonder if there won't be some kind of lasting impact of that, that there's an understanding that, hey, maybe maybe government actually is better placed, right, than private markets to do some things like important service provision, procurement that is in our collective best interests, and providing some of that safety net that we many more of us in this country found that we had to rely on than in previous years. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how lasting that is. Yeah, 100%. This is a fascinating conversation. And I'm really interesting to hear that about government faith rising. But I so appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you again. This is a really fun conversation. That was Jennifer Robson, a professor of political management at Carleton University. Thank you for listening to our show. And thanks to Bryce Hall for his music and production, Yudula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. If you liked our show, you can share it with someone or you can rate us on your podcast app. We'll have another episode next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or any of our five weekly newsletters delivered right to your inbox so you can turn all your notifications off, put your phone away, and just read one email a week to get your news. They cover the economy, energy, finance, investing, and the workplace.